Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm so thankful for the presence of God. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to head in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2, starting at verse 28. It will be there on the screen. And we're going to read just a little bit here. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28. It says, Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned from Adinajah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab, and Adinajah being the brother of Solomon, the son of David, but he was not the chosen son of David. He was not the one that David, God had already told David, was to become king. Solomon was. But, and Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. That's a very important part right there. He caught hold on the horns of the altar. And it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon is kind of cleaning house, if you will. And behold, he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go fall upon him. Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said unto him, Thus saith the king, Come forth. Praise God. Sorry, I've been slacking here. And the king said unto him, Do as he hath said. Oh, let's go back here. And Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said unto him, Thus saith the king, Come forth. And he said, Nay, but I will die here, clinging to the horns of the altar. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus saith Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said unto him, Do as he hath said. And fall upon him, and bury him, that thou mayest take away the innocent blood which Joab has shed from me and from the house of my father. And the Lord shall return his blood upon his own head, who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and slew them with the sword. My father David, not knowing thereof, to wit, Abner, the son of Ner, captain of the hosts of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, captain of the hosts of Judah. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of the seed forever, for, but upon David and upon his seed and upon his house and upon the throne shall there be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah the son of Joida went up and fell upon Joab and slew him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. He slew Joab as he clung to the altar, the horns of the altar. And, and though this title really won't make sense until the very end, and uh, it won't. It doesn't have much to do with my sermon, but certainly to the conclusion of this lesson today. I want to 
speak to you for a little while on slaying at the altar. Hallelujah. I think it'd be good to slay some things at the altar, right? Amen. Praise God. There's some things we just have to slay at the altar. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Lord Jesus, speak to us today. Open up our hearts and our minds, Lord God. We invite you to do a work in us. I, Lord, ask you, Jesus, to speak through me. Help me to say only what you want me to say, nothing more and nothing less. I love you, Lord God, and I thank you for what you're about to do in this place. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord God. Oh, I, th- I thank you, Jesus, for the victory I already feel in this place. The deliverance, Lord Jesus, I feel you're about to do, Lord. Oh, God, I submit to your will and your way. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Have thine own way in this house, Lord God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Praise God, praise God. God bless you. You can be seated. Hallelujah. Tonight I'd like to do a study on this biblical character, Joab, and specifically his relationship with David. And really, this lesson is about David But I'd also like to focus on that biblical character, Joab, and his relationship with David. Now, we know, of course, David was that young boy when he got brought to the palace. He was just a young man when he, they started to chant, David, Saul has his thousand, David his tens of thousands. And we know the story, Saul became very angry, jealous over David wanted to kill David, wanted to remove him out of the equation, get him out of the picture. And long story short, David had to go on the run. He found himself in a cave. Hallelujah. He found himself a hunted man, a wanted man, being hunted by the king of Israel. I mean, you can imagine no place was safe. No person, a true confidant. He had no one to turn to. David then hid inside of a cave. And we see in 1 Samuel 22 and 1, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. His family came, but let's see who else came. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men." Now, these men would become what we know the mighty men of David. Many of them were harsh, brutal men. Hallelujah. They had come to David in his time of need. They had found solace in David. They found a place to belong 
with David because just like David, they too were on the run. They too were in distress, were indebted, discontented. And so they gathered themselves unto David. This became David's little army. Hallelujah. How about we talk about David's little army for a moment? Praise God. You see, humans are incredibly capable of adapting. Just ask anybody who lives in Alaska. Hallelujah. Praise God. We People are incredibly capable of adapting to different situations. It just seems like no matter what the living conditions are, people will find a way to live there. Maybe not comfortably, maybe not without, with all the conveniences that we may have here in Florida, but, but hallelujah, these extreme extravagant places where it's crazy cold or crazy hot or no water or whatever it may be up in the altitudes of the mountains, down below, below the sea level, hallelujah, living on water, some people do it. They live in boats, constantly rocking back and forth. Oh, man, talk about constant seasickness. Actually, we had somebody who attended our church who literally lived in his boat, and he'd come and visit us for a couple months, and he'd go off, and he'd sail somewhere he sells, and then he'd come back the next year, and he did that over and over again. Humans are incredibly capable of adapting. You see, and, and David, who was such a good man, David, who had become known as a righteous man, David, who had become known as a man after God's own heart, he was the singer in the field, he was the, the harp player, he was the, the easy soul, he was the rudy young man who, who nobody believed he could even take on Goliath. Now he was the harborer of thieves. The rough men, the angry men. You see, he had learned how to adapt. Because when you're in the palace, you just hang out with royalty. But when you're in the cave, hallelujah, you've got to do what you can to survive, right? Praise God. That means when you're in the cave and you've got no friends, you've got nobody to cling to, hallelujah, then you'll take anyone as long as they can carry a sword or throw a javelin. You'll take anybody. It doesn't matter if they've got an attitude. It doesn't matter if they've got, uh, uh, you know, anger issues. You're going to invite them in. Why? Because they're what you need in the moment. In the cave, you can pick up a few rough characters. And in the cave, we can pick up a few rough characteristics. And today I'm not talking about adapting and inviting men or women into our lives that shouldn't be there, but rather this thing that every human being does, and that is we adapt and we learn to adopt certain characteristics that will help us in the moment. Consider, if you will, the young man, young woman you used to be and the situations in your life that seem to form who you are today. Like the young man who only got attention when he made people laugh. He learned how to use humor to get a girlfriend, 
He learned how to use his humor to his advantage, right? A young woman growing up in an environment where her looks were the only things recognized. Of course, she's going to use her looks and her beauty to her advantage. Am I right? When we grow up in environments that are not healthy, environments that are not well-balanced, environments that can be rough, environments that can be a struggle to live in, sometimes we can't take on characteristics because it helps us to survive. Like the young boy who didn't have a family, lived as an orphan, learning how to scrounge for food, being very careful to guard his belongings. You better believe that stuff carries through until you're an adult. You learn when you're a child how to fight and get your way. You think that you become an adult and all of a sudden that just drops off? No, but each and every person, we all, we carry with us what they call coping mechanisms or defense mechanisms. These are things that in the middle of hardships or the middle of difficult times in our life. I must uh, miss it. No, there it is. Things that in the midst of the hardships of our lives, we began to take on. Coping mechanisms are the strategies people often use in the face of stress or and or trauma to help manage painful or difficult emotions. Defense mechanisms mostly occur at an unconscious level, and people are generally unaware they are using them. These are things that we have taken a hold of, and they became our partner because that's what we needed at that time. That's what they, we needed in that moment in our life. The hardships in our lives caused us to run to alcohol, drugs, relationships. The hardships in our lives caused us to run to things that were not healthy, or at least at the time it seemed okay, but it developed into an unhealthy coping mechanism or addiction. You see, David, he finally he gave in and he allowed these men to come live with him, these rough 400 small army to come live with him, become a part of him, because while he was in the cave, they were invaluable. While he was on the run, they really did help. But see, it wasn't long before David and these men returned to their families in Ziglag and found that all of their possessions had been stolen away and then he saw what type of people this truly were that were going with him first samuel 30 and 6 and david was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him these 400 men who were loyal to him in the cave outside of the cave when things got desperate 
they turned on him. The distressors became the stressors. What protects you in the cave isn't necessarily loyal to you outside the cave. And that anger that you developed in the cave, maybe that passion you developed in that cave, maybe that pride that you had to adopt in the cave, whatever the characteristic may have been that you took on in the cave, when you come out of the cave, you begin to realize it abandons you. Hallelujah. It turns on you. It's loyal in the cave, but outside of the cave, it's nothing but something that eventually might kill you and your family. Let me preach to you for a moment. God desires for us to get rid of the things we learned in the cave. Oh, hallelujah. Can we pray, clap our hands? Oh, Jesus. You see, we all handle things differently. And if we're not careful, we'll allow the negative characteristics that are in our lives to become part of of our personality. And we walk around and say, well, that anger that I show, that rashness, that loudness, that, 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 that way that you see me, oh no, that's just who I am. Listen to me. That's not who you are. That's who you learn to become. Hallelujah. You are not an alcoholic. That's who you learned to become. You're not addicted to these things. It's not in your personality. You learn to become those things. And if something can be learned to get in, you can learn to kick it out. Hallelujah. If you can learn to invite it in, you can learn to kick it out. Let me tell you, that's not you. That's not you. Somebody shout and say, that's not me. That anger is not you. Yes, it's part of our flesh to get angry, but I'm talking about that person that you are when things get rough and tough. That's not who you are. That's who you learn to become. That violent streak. Oh, I feel, I feel the Holy Ghost. I feel like God's just wanting me to get on some things. That violent streak. That's not of God. You didn't, God didn't give that to you at birth. I know as fleshly human beings, we, we do, or we are prone to be angry, but that violence was learned. And we'd be fools to let it continue in our lives. Ecclesiastes 7 and 9, it says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. What he's saying is, and this is really the distinction, hallelujah, it's not about, okay, I get angry when bad things happen to us. We all get angry. It's an emotional response. But what he is saying is he is saying that you allow anger to rest in your bosom. You become impregnated with anger. And every time anybody looks at you the wrong way or says the wrong thing, there comes that anger. Hallelujah, it comes out like a flash. Not because it's part of your human condition. Condition, but it's because you've learned how to harbor your anger. Can I tell you, and I believe if I may be transparent with you, 
Today we're talking a lot about anger and everything else, but, but anger is just the example of many other characteristics. I know it's hard to believe, but when I was younger, I got picked on a lot. Nobody, everybody's like, when I was younger, I got picked on a lot. And I promise you, I know that I had to learn pride in that cave. It was a defense mechanism. In order to defend myself against those bullies, I had to boast myself up. And listen, I'm not saying that doesn't have a place. In the cave, it does. But outside of the cave, when you're outside of the world, and when you're in the presence of God, the Bible says no man will be exalted in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. What I'm trying to say is what you learned in the cave, it has no place here. It has no place here. James 1.19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to get angry. Why is he saying that? He's saying because you've learned how to respond angrily. You learn how to respond harshly. You learn these characteristics in the cave. Now you need to just slow down <laughs> and be more careful about how you say things. Is that all right? Is this okay teaching you today? Can I tell you the first thing God told me to do when I got back in the church and out of the world is God told me to shut up. Hallelujah. And maybe it wasn't that harsh. But he told me to stop talking. You might think, what in the world do you mean? I mean, literally, he told me to stop talking. Because every time I talked and I said something, I got into an argument. I got defensive. I got argumentative. I tried to do this and that. And God revealed to me, that's not me. That's your flesh. Those are learned responses. That's how you acted in the world. That's how you acted in the cave. That's no place to act. That's not how you act here. Hallelujah. You need to slow down. You need to watch what you say. You need to be careful to get angry. Because look, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. Isn't that incredible? He's talking about anger. But now it's like he just opens it up. He says, get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. All the filth. Hallelujah. Crawling through the cave, he gets dirty. All the filth and the evil in your lives. He says, you need to get rid of it. And you need to humbly, 
Accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. Anybody believe here today that if I can let go of the things I learned in the cave and accept humbly the word of God, I will be set free. Come on, you don't have to live with those addictions. You will be set free. You don't have to live with that violent streak. You will be set free. You don't have to live as a liar. You can be set free. You don't have to live as a prideful jerk. You can be set free. If you just come humbly to God, come humbly. You see, there's several coping mechanisms, defensive mechanisms. And often, and and please hear me today, if you're somebody who's dealing with addiction, and yet you've truly lost the desire of that addiction, but you still can't stop it. The issue is not that you want that addiction. The issue is you've learned to live with that addiction. And there's a big difference. Because what we don't realize is often addiction, it's not about the thing. Drinking alcohol is not about drinking alcohol. Doing drugs is not about doing drugs. Looking at pornography is not about looking at pornography. These things are to help you cope with your life. And because you've done it for so long, now every time you don't do it or you try to kick it out, what replaces it is depression and hardship and loneliness Why? It's because these things have grown to become a comfort for you. You've learned to cope with your life because of these things. They are an escape. This is one of the coping mechanisms to escape. To escape means to cope with anxiety or stress. Some people may withdraw from friends, become socially isolated, They may absorb themselves in a solitary activity such as watching television, reading, or spending time online. Those things may have developed first just as an escape, but then they quickly become an addiction. Unhealthy self-soothing. Some self-soothing behaviors are healthy in moderation, but may turn into an unhealthy addiction as you completely indulge into that thing. Some of this could, of course, become overeating, drinking coffee, excessive use of internet, video games, anything that allows you to just self-soothe. There's also numbing. Some self-soothing behaviors may become numbing behaviors. You just want to stop feeling. When a person engages in numbing behaviors, they are often aware of what they are doing and may seek out an activity that will help them drown out or override their distresses. People may seek to numb their stress by eating junk food, drinking alcohol, using drugs. There's also compulsions and risk-taking. This is something that I felt God revealed to me some time ago that I I tend to do this. 
when I'm overwhelmed, I try to find something that's just out there. Seems like when I'm overwhelmed with church work, it's when every time I'm overwhelmed with church work, I'd go and write a controversial post on one of the forms. I had to learn this about myself. That's silly. Well, it's because for some reason in that environment, it was like I just I wanted to cope and just find something exciting, something that will put me on the edge. You think it's crazy, but again, we've all learned how to cope in different ways. And I have learned that. And thank God with the help of my wife who tells me never post again, I've not posted in a long time. (laughs) But stress can cause some people to seek an adrenaline rush through compulsive or risk-taking behaviors such as gambling, unsafe relationships, experimenting with drugs, theft, reckless driving, posting on Facebook apparently. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the worst. And to some of us, this seems absolutely outrageous. But to the younger generation, this is actually common. That is a a, a coping mechanism of self-harm. People engage in self-harming behaviors to cope with extreme stress or trauma. If you ever talk to somebody who cuts themselves and you ask them, why would you do that? To us, it does not make any sense at all. They'll tell you, it's because I felt like it was a relief. Let me be honest, it's not a relief. That's just something that you've done in order to try to escape the issues at hand. Maybe it's a very, very bad habit that you took on in the cave. But let me tell you, God wants to deliver you from all of that. God wants to deliver us from all of that. Hallelujah. Can I tell you exactly how we're supposed to respond? Look at Philippians chapter 4 and 6. Be careful for nothing. That word careful means be anxious about nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You want to know how to cope? Let prayer be your coping mechanism. Let worship be your coping mechanism. Let going to church be it. Let reading the Bible be it. Let fasting be I know it seems contrary, but oh man, I've never found more relief than when I got myself in a prayer room. I've never found more stress relief. Then when I lifted up my hands and began to praise God, he is the solution. He is the answer. Hallelujah, because if we're careful for nothing or anxious about nothing, but in everything, we go to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that no matter how bad it looks, when you begin to turn to him, you begin to pray, you begin to praise God, you begin to turn your life to him, no matter how bad it looks, the peace of God will come into your life. 
grave. And you'll say, I don't know why I feel this way. I should be, I should be, you know, drunk. I should be down in the floor weeping and crying. But the Bible says the peace of God, it will keep your heart and your mind. It will help you. That's why he says this. Next verse. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. He's he's trying to give us coping coping mechanisms that are beneficial to us. Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue. If there be any praise. Think on these things. That's everything that we didn't learn in the cave. That's only the stuff we can learn when we put our trust in the Lord. Hallelujah. When we truly give our hearts to God, that's what we have to learn. Think on these things. Let these things develop you. Let these things become your crutch. When you're unsure where life is taking you, begin to consider the truth of the Word of God. When you feel like you just don't know where your life is heading, start thinking on things of honest, honesty and truth. Hallelujah, when people around you are trying to entice you to do things bad, think on things that are just and pure. Hallelujah, when you're only surrounded by hatred, violence, people who want to do you wrong, think about lovely things. Think about good things, things that are of good report. Think on virtuous things. Think on things that are praiseworthy. Allow there to be positivity in your mind and push out those you acquired in the cave. Now, I want to get to the star of our show, Joab. While David was on the run, the Bible says his family came to him. It is believed that one of those who came to him was his nephew, Joab, in that time. He became very acquainted with David the first time we actually see him in the narrative is actually in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 5. You see, David could lean on Joab and the other men in the cave. But when he came out of the cave, these men still followed him. And, and even though he was beginning to take over the kingdom again, Saul had died from the hands of the Pharisees, or not the Pharisees, the Philistines, praise God. But even though David had almost fully acquired the kingdom into his hands, an exalted king, there was one area, Jerusalem, and those, the inhabitants of, the, of Jebus, who said, Thou shalt not come thither. Said, you cannot come up into Jerusalem. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. How did he do it? Well, 
he called on an old friend, one that he'd become very well acquainted with in the cave. David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, went first up and was chief. You see, Joab, he was the harshest and the meanest, the baddest of the bad, if you will. And David needed him in that moment. He needed to capture Jerusalem so that he could finally begin his reign as king. David used Joab, the harsh man he acquired in the cave, to move him up in the world. You see, what we don't realize is what we learn in the cave can sometimes better us outside of the cave. I'm not here to try to pretend like maybe some of those characteristics isn't what got you your success in the first place. But David was sadly mistaken when he believed that Joab had made him a better person. And it was all too late by the time David realized that. David assigned Joab as the commander-in-chief or the captain of the host in 1 Chronicles 27-34. And after Ahithophel was Joiada, the son of Benaiah and Abiatar. And the general of the king's army was Joab. Hallelujah. He began to lean on Joab because Joab got things done when he needed a person who could rise up and destroy an army. He called on Joab. And when he needed to get things done that were not good, he also called on Joab. You see, when David had gotten another man's wife pregnant, he called on Joab to send Uriah from the army. When Uriah was better than David, more upright than David, refused to go home to his wife, completely called David's bluff, even though he didn't know about it. David sent a letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. You see... What David had learned in the cave, he had gained a characteristic that although he could hide away, every now and then he pulled it out in order to do the things he knew was unholy and unrighteous. And I'm afraid that sometimes we harbor those characteristics. We harbor those things in our life and think it's okay as long as we're not letting it be the predominant characteristic in our life. But can I tell you, if you hold on to Joab, you'll always got get an excuse to use him to kill off Uriah. And next time somebody does you wrong, the next time you need to cover your traps your tracks, the next time you need something covered, you're going to call on 
that bad side of you named Joab. David had used Joab, but Joab slowly began to show David the reason you trusted him to send that letter, the reason you sent that letter to him and trusted him to put your eye in the front of the battle, that's the same man who will betray you and will go too far. 2 Samuel 18 and 11 tells us, I'm sorry, before we get there, let me tell one more story. Abner, who was with the family of Saul, had finally decided to turn camp and go with David. Abner had, in the midst of battle, killed Joab's brother. And David, trying to restore peace in the kingdom, took Abner back in and said, all that you did was under the idea of war, but now it's time for peace. David sought to restore Abner to a position of honor in his house. Joab, though, wouldn't allow it. Joab, when David wasn't looking, treacherously murdered Abner. And by doing so, he ensured that he still remained number one in David's life. You see, those characteristics that seem to be so beneficial at times, seem so beneficial in the cave, seem so beneficial when you're trying to rise up the ranks at your job, seem so beneficial in all that you've done, now you begin to see that when you want to do good, there Joab is to do bad. Then Joab said unto the man that told him, Behold, thou sawest him, talking about David's son, who had betrayed David, who had taken the kingdom from David. David once again had to rely on Joab, but David never wanted his son to be killed. David never wanted to go that far. David explicitly told the army, do not kill my son. Do not kill my son. Yet Joab said, why didn't you smite him there to the ground, talking to the servant who had found David's son? He said, I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son? For in our hearing the king charged thee, and Abashai, and Atai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man, Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life. For there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself wouldest have set thyself against me. He's saying you can't go against the king's word and live. But look, then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee, 
and he took three darts in his hands and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor come past about and smote Absalom and slew him. Now, David is seeing how that Joab is affecting his family. David is seeing that even though Absalom may have betrayed David, David allowed a man to remain in his life that was harsh, that went beyond the call of duty and destroyed his family. Joab thought he knew better than David. Can I tell you, there's an old saying, sin will always take you further than you ever thought you'd go and will always keep you there longer than you'd always thought you'd stay. And I'm not just talking about sin. I'm not just talking about addiction. I'm talking about these characteristics that we got from childhood that we still haven't slain gotten out of our lives. You see, at this point, David was done, and I'm almost done, but David was done. He tried to replace uh, Joab in 2 Samuel chapter 19 and 13, and say ye to Amasa, art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. But here's where David went wrong. David relied too much on Joab. Joab was too important to him to kill him, even though Joab had taken away his son. So David let Joab live. He just tried to hide him again. But see, the same reason why Joab had been exalted to the chief, the same reason why Joab would never quit until you kill him off. Second Samuel 20 and 9. And Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him therewith in the fifth rib and shed out his bowels to the ground and struck him not again. And Joab died. And by doing so, David had no hope but to exalt Joab back to the chief of his army. Because if you let things just fester in your life and you lean on these things for too long, they won't let you go without a fight. And it'll kill off everything you try to bring good in your life. Let me tell you, that's why you got to kill it off. That's why you got to get rid of it. That's why you got to turn it away. That's why you got to slay it at the altar. That's why you got to get rid of it. If we could stand. First Kings 2 and 28, then tidings came to Joab. 
He heard that Solomon was wanting to kill him. But why was Solomon wanting to kill him? Because Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom, even though sometimes he was loyal to David, this time once again he was not. But there was another reason why Solomon wanted to kill him. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. Moreover, this is David talking to Solomon. Thou knowest also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the hosts of Israel, unto Abner, the son of Ner, and unto Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peacetime. See, that's what it does. In war, he's invaluable, but in peacetime, he still goes too far. And he put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. In verse 6, Do therefore according to thy wisdom and let not his whorehead go down to the grave in peace. You see, because what David was unwilling or unable to do in his lifetime, he asked Solomon to do it in his. Can I tell you, if we continue to harbor those characteristics, those coping mechanisms, your children are learning all of that. This is not their battle to fight. This is not their enemy to defeat. But if we don't take care of it, we will be calling on our sons and our daughters to take care of it. And Lord, God help them to do it. Because it's possible they may allow it to continue in their lives just as you and I have. If you don't do it, your kids will have to. Well, pastor, then what's the solution here? What am I supposed to do with this? I've had this wrath since I was a child. Maybe you got it from your father. I've had this lust inside of me I've not been able to kick. I've got this addiction that I've had since I was a teenager. Pastor, what am I supposed to do with all this stuff? I've tried to, to remove it. i tried to replace it. What am I supposed to do? you got to do as Solomon did. And you just have to slay it at the altar. I don't got any other solution for you. I'm sure some program out there can help you with your coping mechanisms. I'll just tell you what I've learned. That's to get my face into the altar. That's to pray until I get it out of me. That's to ask God to remove it. That's to give it over to the Lord and say, God, I don't want this anymore. When I'm, when I'm alone, God, I don't want this coping mechanism. When I'm sad, I don't want to do this coping mechanism. 
mechanism. Lord God, when I'm stressed, I don't want to handle this coping mechanism. Lord, right now, I lay it at the altar. I slay it at the altar. I want to invite you right now. If I'm at any point talked about something maybe you're struggling with, hallelujah, something inside of you that has just kept being just a nagging voice. Maybe you get angry when you shouldn't get angry. Maybe you get depressed when you shouldn't get depressed. Maybe a little too violent. Maybe you grow to addiction. Hallelujah. Maybe there's other things that you tend to do that are unhealthy for you. Not good for your family. Can you find a place right now to call on God? Can you come down to the altar? Lay it at the altar and say, God, I don't want this in my life anymore. I lay it down. I slay it right here at the altar, Lord. I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm not going to reserve it. I'm not going to make my kids deal with this. I'm not going to hurt my wife or my husband over this anymore. Lord God, I'm not going to hurt my career over this anymore. But Lord Jesus, I slay it here at the altar, God. Oh,